14. Second Corinthians 5, verse 14. Excuse me. Second Corinthians 5, 14. Last week we talked about theories of the atonement, and I kind of did a little bit of church history and showed what ideas have been bantered around in church history. And we pointed out that the amazing thing was the first several hundred years of church history, or almost the first, almost to the time of Anselm, there was this ransom theory of the atonement that was believed. But it's really unbiblical. So, so let's just make an application of what we learned last week. You can't find the truth solely based on what was believed at some period of church history. Ultimately, I'm not saying we should be ignorant of church history. I'm a big believer in knowing it and studying it, which I've done myself. But, but the fact is, just because the ransom theory was believed for a long time doesn't make it the truth. Because when we look at the biblical data, the idea of substitution is found in the Old Testament, it's in, the, it's in Leviticus, it's in the atonement. Uh, it, the, the firstborn, remember we were studying Exodus, the firstborn, there was a substitute for the firstborn because the firstborn belonged to the Lord. You have the substitutionary idea in, in um, Isaiah chapter 53. And then you have these passages like we're looking at here that say explicitly that Christ died for us. Okay, and, and, uh, and so we're going to look at that here. Here's what it says. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So the biblical data is really very, very clear and explicit. And so the question would be, why then did they believe the ransom theory? If you weren't here last week, uh, you could listen on by if you if you want to hear the discussion on theories of the atonement, it's on our website. But if you weren't here last week, the ransom theory was that that Christ died to, to ransom us from Satan. So the price was paid to Satan. There are still people teaching that today, most notably the word of faith, uh, the, the followers of Kenneth Copeland and all of the, his theological cousins out there are still teaching the ransom theory, that, that Jesus had to ransom us from Satan because Satan owned the human race. But the Bible makes it clear that the price was paid to God, the, the price for our, our sins. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So the blood was shed to avert God's wrath against our sin. Now, having introduced that, let's, let's have a, a prayer time here. I'm going to pray for this Sunday and for the class and for the people that listen in. And then we will uh, proceed with the lecture on this these two verses. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together today. And we again thank you for the beloved saints around the world who listen and, and join with us over the internet by uh, wanting to hear and learn and be a part of the fellowship that we have so that we can together uh, receive grace from your word, instruction, encouragement and hope and all the things that we need so desperately. 
We pray for those beloved saints. We thank you for them. And we pray that this Sunday morning, as we gather around the means of grace, we would be conformed more fully to the image of your beloved Son. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Verse 14. Let's, let's look at this and see that indeed we have here the substitutionary atonement being taught by the Scripture. First of all, he talks about the love of Christ. We've talked about this before, um, the genitive construction in the Greek can either be an objective genitive or subjective genitive. And that's exactly the construction here. And the New American Standard has correctly um, translated into English. The, the way the genitive works in English would be the love of Christ. So this can either mean, if it's subjective genitive, it would be Christ's love for us. And if it's the objective genitive, it would be our love for Christ. <laughs> okay? Now, there's another term I saw as I was studying this case again this week, because I've also ran into it in my sermon preparation, is what some scholars call the plenary genitive. And what that would be, would be that because of the possibility that it could be either one, if both ideas are true, the author could be intending for us to understand that both ideas are true. Okay? In other words, the love of Christ that controls us is both His love for us and our love for Him. That's a result of that. Both of those things are true. However, we and sometimes the context which is, has, has to uh, settle the uh, matter for us would give us the idea that perhaps it is this plenary idea. So the love of Christ... Um, so he loves, we love him because he first loved us, it says in, in 1 John, controls us. Now, uh, this is a, a fairly strong word, and it has a, the word controls has a range of meaning. It can mean restrain, it can mean to guard, um, and it can mean to crowd around, okay, or to dominate. Or, or uh, one. Uh, uh, translation of it I found that I like. It says, or hold in one's grip. So if we take this to be um, the subjective genitive and we have Christ's love for us, then his, his love uh, surrounds us and holds us in his grip. I like that idea. <laughs> I like that idea because whether you take it as the subjective or the plenary idea, either way, Christ's love has to be Ultimately, the source. If he hadn't loved us, we would not love him. Amen? And so the love of Christ it has us in his grip. And um, the people of God need to be taught the, the, the sovereignty of God and his sanctifying work in our lives. We need uh, to have hope in God and not hope in self. And we're going to see that in our sermon as I'm going to talk about what it means to bear the cross this morning. And so much theology in our modern or postmodern era is so self-centered and man-centered that we ultimately uh, want to have control and people gravitate to any 
theology that they think will give them the most control because that's what they want to have because they trust themselves. They don't trust God. And frankly, I feel a lot more comforted that the love of Christ has me in His grip than I have comfort in my ability to love Him because I think that is, uh, can be very faulty. But I do trust Him. So the love of Christ controls us. Now, there is a reason that we have this confidence that the love of Christ has us in His grip. Having concluded this, and this is an aorist, so that means it's something that happened at a point of time, uh, and it means to have decided on something. So those, Paul and us included, have concluded something. And, and, and that happened, I believe, at our conversion, and that is that one died, aorist, point in time, for all, Therefore, all died. So, Christ died for all. Now, the, the word uh, for, who pair, has a, a fairly significant range of meaning. And I did a, quite a bit of study in the Greek grammar as I was looking at this, because I wanted to affirm this idea of the substitutionary atonement. And A.T. Robertson and others have pointed out that in this sort of construction, that this indicates on behalf of. In this kind of a context, it means on behalf of. And so, um, he died on our behalf. Now, a similar construction is found, um, in according to my notes here, Galatians 1 and verse 4. Robert, we'll start with you. If you could look up Galatians 1 and verse 4 and see if we have that same idea in that passage. Galatians 1 verse 4. I'll start in three. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. He gave himself for our sins. So you get the concept of on behalf of? I'm just going to, you know, Hebrews 9 is probably one of the better ones I know. When you're talking about the love of Christ compelling us or surrounding us, Okay. it's... Because he were sprinkled with the blood of Christ so that we have this, the blood, in a very real sense, covering us because it's all around and the blood is his love. It exemplifies his love. It says Hebrews 9.11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. With the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of their flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Yeah. And then the whole chapter closes with 28. So Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin for those who eagerly wait for him. Exactly. There, and there's the substitutionary idea. He was offered once to what? Bear the sins of many. You know, it's, it's really hard for me to understand how the early church missed that. I mean, from the very beginning, they just didn't get it. Um, the church fathers were believing this ransom theory. But if you read Hebrews 9, it's obviously talking about what happens before God. Satan's not even in the equation. Yeah, we were delivered from Satan because of that, but that was a byproduct because the real problem and the thing that Satan uses against us 
is the fact that we're sinners. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren and accuses us day and night before God. And you get the same idea in Colossians 2. He disarmed the, the authorities, the powers. How did they have power over us? Canceling out the decree of debt against us. So the only power that Satan had over us was the fact that God is a just and righteous God, and Satan can go to God and say, you, you cannot lie, you're God, you're just, these people are sinful, so you have no choice but to condemn them to hell with me. But when, when the blood was shed, once for all, that's very, very important. Okay? Some, I guess that they were talking, this, this is coming, they're going to be discussed. Elizabeth, you're going to talk about this in Tuesday morning, right? Yeah. There's this, I, let's just talk about it because it's on the, the, the idea is on the table. The blood atonement, substitutionary atonement, uh, Hebrews 9, it was shed once for all before God. All right? Uh, so I got an email from a, a couple of uh, people from the church asking about this idea of pleading the blood. Have you heard that? Plead the blood over your car. Plead the blood over your kids when they go over to school. Plead the blood over your money or your billfold or, or, or so on. The, the, there's a misunderstanding, and, 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 I, and, I, and I don't want to be you know, mean to anybody, but a lot of people have a misunderstanding. The blood of Jesus is not a metaphysical entity in the universe like some sort of substance. I mean, you get that idea in the Catholic Eucharist that the blood is uh, transubstantiated. You know, I mean, the wine is transubstantiated into some entity that's actually blood. But the Bible is very, very clear that this blood was the literal, real blood of Jesus and it was shed once for all. It says that in Hebrews over and over again, once for all. So the only legitimate way of pleading the blood is what we do at our conversion. Okay? Is, is that we go to God having no plea. Isn't that in that one song that he used to do at altar calls? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just as I am. The only plea we have is that his blood was shed for us once for all. But uh, so from then on, we walk by faith that that shed blood once for all is paid the penalty for our sin and God accepted it. And then that's what it means. There's not any entity floating around called blood that you can get or call on or whatever. Yes. And I think that the concept that we have, the whole, what's the worst part about the ransom theory is that it takes our eyes off what the real issue is because Satan has no power. All Satan is doing is enforcing God's decrees. He's like <laughs> the enforcer of God's law. And if God's law says we're going to have death, it's God that's saying you're going to die. Yeah. And it's Satan that's claiming you told him you're going to die. But when God says... I look on this blood, and that's paid the price, and their Satan has no more power. That's the core issue. Yeah, exactly. And, and you can see that in these passages. And that's what spiritual warfare is about. That's another false teaching that people come under is the spiritual warfare, which is the idea that you have to directly interact with demons. I, I did this. If you didn't hear faith at risk, that's what I talked about at faith at risk and what I talked about down in Barbados, is that... This direct interaction with demons in order to gain liberty or freedom is not what the New Testament teaches. The Christian does not have to know which demon is over which territory. 
The Christian doesn't need to know which demon is making him do some certain sin. Did you know that not once in the entire New Testament does it ever attribute um, a, a, a certain sin to a spirit? Just get out your concordance if you want. Test this one. See if you can find a spirit of anger, a spirit of lust, a spirit of greed, an intellectual spirit. Keith, you were, he was accused of that um, when he was getting out of the charismatic movement. And I remember that too. Because he started studying the Bible, studying theology in order to correct the errors that he'd been taught. They thought... Yeah, they they thought he had an intellectual spirit. (laughs) No, it's called using your brain, and God doesn't mind when we do that. (laughs) You don't have to turn off your brain when you go into the church. Um, Bell back here. (laughs) I just want to thank you for your explanation on the the pleading the blood deal, because I think I'm finally starting to see this. And I, I like the way you compared it with Roman Catholicism because not being a Catholic, from what I understand about transubstantiation, uh, every Sunday they have a Mass and, you, and they actually proclaim wine to become or transubstantiate into Christ's blood. Yeah. Well, well, this business of pleading the blood is basically the same deal. You're pleading out of, out of the spiritual into the material realm uh, something to, to take place. And if if Christ died once and for all, and you do this again, you know, and, and proclaim Christ's blood as an atonement for something else that, that, that is sub, subsequent to what he did on the cross, you're doing the same thing, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, it's very much the same air. And, it, and, and the reason for these airs developing, by the way, is our pagan tendencies. All right? We, the human race... You just, planet Earth is pagan. The human race is pagan. If you just don't do anything else and just let people go to their natural inclination. If you, if you have some country somewhere and nobody ever went there and told them any world religions, just let them decide what religion they're going to have, it'll be paganism every time. And what is paganism but a superstitious attempt to interact with spirits, to, to mollify the spirits, to get the spirits to do work for you, to assume that the spirits are somehow uh, uh, involved directly in, like, in animism. You know, you get spirits in the trees and spirits doing this and spirits doing that. And the fact is that the spirits are there. And the spirits are feeding this uh, attention. They love the attention. Okay? And as, as I was talking to people in Barbados, because they were just bombarded with these type of teachings. And I talked to some people afterwards. Diane, you heard that one lady was saying, she goes to these meetings and she keeps getting these spirit manifestations. And she says, what, what do I do about it? After she heard my teaching. I said, ignore it. Just, just trust God and go about life and don't pay any attention. Absolutely, don't interact with spirits. The more you ignore them, the more you don't get this stuff. All right? And so pagans are always wanting to manipulate the spirit world or substantiate. In other words, they want to create the unseen spirits. They want to see it become real or manifest. So transubstantiation is just a pagan uh, inclination that's come into the church. Yes. And when you look at just in anthropology or just go study the cultures of the world, there's no culture they found anywhere that was inherently atheistic. 
Yeah, that's just, true. Everybody, when you go Dude, and find put the some, mic more straight at you. When you find any you culture, some hidden in the mountains or whatever, whenever they find them, they have some type of pagan religion already established. Yes. There's not something inherently uh, atheistic. And what's interesting now is even after an intellectual phase of atheism as a philosophy, the whole world is getting back into spiritism and getting back into paganism under the guise of, of New Age and other uh, right. rediscovering our pagan roots. A absolutely. Neo-paganism is the fastest growing religion in the world. And it's also what is coming into the church under the guise why all the spiritual formation we were talking about on the radio yesterday. Why is all that coming into the church? Because we're by nature pagans. And the only thing that restrains our pagan impulses is clear teaching of the Bible and means of grace. We, the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. The Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for. See, we want substance. We want our tangible spirituality. We want something that's more real that we can see or feel than just to believe in a Christ whom we've never seen, believe that the blood was shed that we cannot see, and believe that there's a high priest whom we cannot see, who's in heaven at the right hand of God whom we cannot see, and that he's interceding for us and we can't see him doing it. And that goes against our pagan inclinations. We want it to become tangible. So, how do you have a tangible interaction with the spirit world? That's what mysticism is about. So you have to learn, you have to be taught to hear spirits. Because we can't do it with our five physical senses. They're, not, they're unseen, they're unheard under normal circumstances. And we don't realize how blessed we are that it's like that. Before, I believe before the flood, it wasn't like that. And, and Keith has written some articles to that effect that have been published on Christian Worldview Network. And um, we want to get back to that interacting with the spirits. Why? Well, they're evil. Why do people want to interact with the evil spirits? Because they, get, they want something they can see. Just like the Israelites, once Moses became unseen... They said, we don't know what happened to Moses. He was the one talking to us about God. He's gone. So let's make a calf we can see. It's tangible. Yes. I think what all of the other religions of the world have spirits interacting with them. That's where they get their guidance. They're getting their guidance through spirits or through some prophets that they're... That or or are, a shaman. A shaman that are interacting with the spirits, mediating with them, with the spirits. And we're the only religion that God came as man, and God spoke as man with real vocal cords to real ears, objectively, he had a real corporal body, people touched him, and this God died for us. They saw him on the cross, shed real blood, it was tangible, was objective, and we have an objective religion that's based on tangible facts, that these words were God's words because it was proved by the resurrection of the dead. All of the paganism that's out there has people interacting with spirits, and I believe they are interacting with spirits, oh, yeah. but there's no, it's not God coming to them. It's a spiritual delusion that's coming to them. Our God died for us, and that's exactly what we're reading in this passages. That's why it's different. Paul was writing to he a died. pagan world. Yep. He was writing to a pagan worldview, and this, what we're studying in Corinthians, 
were people coming out of paganism in the same way our culture right now is coming out of paganism. They're we're going fighting into paganism. paganism. Yeah. We're fighting paganism. We're fighting paganism, absolutely. And so what is spiritual formation? Spiritual formation is the idea that we're not going to become sanctified by the means of grace that are all once-for-all things that we commemorate. The once-for-all faith delivered to the saints we read, that's a means of grace. When we receive communion, which is a means of grace, we're remembering the once-for-all shed blood, not re-shedding it over and over. We're remembering what God did once for all. When we're baptized, we're proclaiming the Lord's death as being our death and His resurrection to be our resurrection. Okay. When we fellowship with one another and pray, we're reminding ourselves and we're stirring up our faith and we're uh, provoking one another to love and good works because of what God did once for all. It all was done once for all and done before witnesses in real history and not mediated by spirits. Okay. All paganism is some way of mediating spirits from the spirit to the tangible. Spiritual formation is paganism for Christians. And it is uh, there. And I, uh, let me tell you, when we wrote articles making these claims, we, we had a bunch of CIC articles making these claims, including the one about what prophecy is and personal words from God. And I, here, the feedback, here's the feedback I got. Well, you're just all you have is an intellectual religion. You have no relationship. Now, here's what they were saying. To have, I, will not, I can't believe I have a relationship with God unless God is talking to me now. That's what they said. I want God talking to me now. Every one of those people, I responded to the emails and I, and I put them back into the corner. I said, okay, so you're getting personal revelations from God, and you believe that's God speaking to you. Do you know that those revelations are inerrant and authoritative and, and perfectly binding? Are they certainly God? Is every one of those impressions you're getting from the spirit world, do you know that it's just as much God as John 3.16 is? And not one of these mystics that were mad about my article, would say that. And so then I asked him question two. Therefore, these words you're getting from the spirit realm that maybe are from God or maybe are not from God, and they contain mixture that may or may not be from God, you're saying that God's binding you under the threat of being sin, sinning against God and being punished for sin if you don't follow words that maybe aren't even from him. Now, why would God bind you to err? And there was not one person that would keep their, make that claim. Yeah, they all disappeared. Everybody went away. Nobody wanted to debate me. So they want to say they're hearing from God, but what they're hearing they don't want to really say is from God. Or what they're hearing from God is not even binding, and they can safely ignore all of it. I said, okay, so I've decided to ignore it all before I even go looking for it. The only thing I'm bound to is what God has said, and this is inerrant and authoritative, this Bible. All right? I get an idea in my mind that maybe it's not from God. All that stuff is part of providence. You have a dream, all right? Is it from God or not? Well, it's part of providence. Providentially, you dreamt. Now, providence has good and evil in it. And we have to look at providence. Providence is world history unfolding. 
God's providence in your life is your life unfolding. Your thoughts, your feelings, your dreams, uh, your experiences, that's all about providence. We're here because of providence. I read the paper every morning except for the morning because it didn't get here because of the snow, and I was very sad. I cannot, get, I cannot get my day started if I don't have like four cups of coffee and read the paper. So I had no choice but just get ready for church. Um, so, but what am I doing when I read the paper? People say, well, why read the paper? It's, got, it's written by liberals. Well, it's not all, they're not all liberals in there. The paper, I'm, I'm, I am studying God's providence for the country and city and state I live in. And when you study providence, you have to use what you know from the Bible to make decisions about what's good and what's evil. Okay? So you could say providentially, our legislator, our governor is who he is, and our senators and representatives are who they are, and providentially they made a decision. But I can still decide that it was an evil decision based on this. Right? Or some things are good based on this. Or some things are uh, not good or evil, they're just options, like the Bible says in, in uh, Romans 14. You can eat meat or you can eat vegetables. That's what it says. You're free. You can make, you're free. All of these things that are not bound, we're free to make a choice. So it's not necessarily good or evil that we decided to build this bridge rather than another bridge. You know, it's just part of providence. So what about your dreams? That's part of providence. So you dream something and you get up. If you want to make your decisions based on your dream, uh, I, I can't keep. I can't say you can't do that. But if you claim God, it's from God, then you made yourself a prophet. And in that article that we published, I said, if you bind yourself to your own thoughts in the name of God, you have become a false prophet to your own self. If any one of them was ever wrong, because the test of prophets is they have to be 100% accurate. So, so the safe thing to do is don't bind yourself to your own ideas. If you want to make your decision, remember this, my, my illustration of the post-it notes? All right? This, I believe this would not be a sin. Let's say you were dreaming, and in your dream you saw post-it notes stuck everywhere. Everywhere you look, a little yellow post-it note. And so you got up in the morning and you decide, I think I should buy 3M stock. If you want to buy stock based on your dream, you're free to do so. But don't say God told you. And if you lost money, well, then that's, that's what happens. Or if you made money, then fine. But uh, you can make decisions however you decide to make your decisions. But they're your decisions. They're not binding words from God. Now, that's our position. And because people are lusting for more than what God has chosen to give them, and they want personal revelations, and they want to hear the spirit world speak to them in the name of God, they go and learn from Richard Foster and Dallas Willard and these other heretics. Because if you just are an ordinary person like me, and you go about ordinary life, the spirit world is not talking to you. And you don't realize what a blessing that is. I counsel people that the spirit world is talking to, and they sometimes end up back in the 70s, and they ended up in the asylum. He might be talking to you, but it's just one data point. You have a feeling or you don't have a feeling, so what? You don't pay attention to it. And so I basically told the people in Barbados that had been laboring under this 
harmful teaching that they that they have to personally interact with spirits or they're, they're, they believe they're cursed, they believe their life wasn't going to go right or something bad was going to happen to them. That's what the pagans believe. And I said, you don't, don't even go there. You don't want to interact with the spirits. You don't know you're blessed based on the spirits or cursed based on the spirits. You know it based on whether you have a relationship with God through Christ. Try it. Yeah, I came out of a Pentecostal, many Pentecostal churches, and I've seen a lot of the stuff you're talking about. And I think one of the things that gets people into the biggest error is they don't study the Word with the proper hermeneutic. And I think that's the key for us to stay out of these errors, to study the Word, use the correct hermeneutics, and we can avoid these things. Hermeneutics, he said that people study the Word without correct hermeneutics, and that's true. Hermeneutics, what are we talking about? Well, uh, the basic error of false hermeneutics is the idea that the reader determines the meaning of the Bible. And, And all of these... Uh, versions of hermeneutics is based on direct inspiration. God, I was reading the Bible and God told me it means this. That, no, the way God determines the meaning of the Bible is by inspiring the author who wrote it. And the meaning is there and it never changes. So when you say God told me it means this, you just said this. The reader determines the meaning. Now, and imagine what life would be like if that's the way all written uh, material was. The liberals would like it that way. The liberals want the reader to determine the meaning of the Constitution, right? Uh, we don't want the author to determine the meaning. We want to determine the meaning. It's a living document. They, and the neo-Orthodox and uh, 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 emergent version of the Bible, the, re, the reader determines the meaning. Uh, whether it's a group of readers or an individual one, it's still the reader determining the meaning. And so they say, oh, oh, no, we have a high view of the Scripture. We believe that, that the Holy Spirit is working through the Scripture. But here's what they mean by that. The Holy Spirit is telling us what the Bible means. The Holy, instead of the Holy Spirit inspiring the biblical authors, and what they mean is always their meaning, and it, you know, it's not going to change, the church is finding their new meanings because the Bible is being morphed into whatever they deem it to be. Yes. And what we're not saying, we're not claiming that you can't uh, read a passage and says, and he got married and you're thinking about marriage, so you, you well, I read it there, I'm going to make a decision based on, on some, on my putting a meaning in there. You can do that. You can flip a coin if you're deciding to marry this person or that person. You can flip a coin and make a decision based on that if you want to. But just don't attribute it to God. Any of, yeah, <laughs> just don't say that's certainly God. And normally in a normal life, if a guy made all his decisions flipping a coin, you would see the uh, cause and effect in his life when you looked at him. Be chaotic. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the best way or the most intelligent way to make all of your decisions. Yeah. So claiming that it's certainly God that I had this feeling or claiming that it's certainly God that I'm taking the scripture out of context is just not right. Yeah, no, wrong. you can't do that. All right, so let's get back to what this one says. Okay, we concluded. Remember, that was to decide something, and it was a point of time, and so I would assume that was at our conversion, the point of time that we came to realize that Christ died for all. One died, Eris. Once for all, point in time, Christ died. Who paired on behalf of, in this sort of a context, all. Now we've got to decide who are the all. All right? Now, here's where we get into a discussion of some people get so mad that they just, they just absolutely boil. They get so mad. And it's this issue of the limited atonement. Boy, I'll tell you, if you want people mad, just even talk about that idea. Now, 
I don't even debate it with anybody because the only people that don't believe in a limited atonement are universalists. All right? Everybody that believes some people end up in hell believes in limited atonement. Because if, if, if the atonement was universally unlimited, as far as people are concerned, in its actual effect, yeah, Judas would be in heaven, Hitler would be in heaven, there would, there would be no loss. So if there's anybody in hell, then whoever believes that believes the, li- the atonement is limited. All right, so now what do we have to, left to debate? Well, all we have to d- debate is what limits the atonement. Is the atonement potentially enough for all sins? Well, I think almost everybody agrees yes to that. There's no limit in the power of Christ's blood to take away sins. All right? So, so we're not even disagreeing on that. So, so what's everybody so mad about? Well, one issue. Is, is, the, is, is the, the ultimate limit because God... Uh, determined to save some, or is it limited by man's choices? And then we're right back to the debate on election, and so we haven't really gone any further by even talking about it. All right? So that's why I don't really care about TULIP, and I don't talk about TULIP, because you just end up going down a bunny trail, and, and you might as well just stick with one issue. And did God determine to save who he saves from all eternity? Or did God wait for human decisions to determine who's saved? You decide what you believe on that. That's the only one you have to worry about. Put all the other stuff, don't worry about it. I mean, it's important. I'm not belittling the fact that theologians discuss these things. But I have not yet met a single Arminian who didn't believe in the limited atonement. They get mad and claim, I don't believe that, I don't believe that. But they all think people are in hell. Well, the atonement didn't do those people in hell any good, did it? All right, so there we go. That's my little spiel today. All right, so who are the all? Well, here, but we want to have authorial intent. Remember the Bible? What did Paul mean when he said he died for all? Well, let's read the rest of the verse. Therefore, all died. Now, what does it mean that all died? Well, let's let's read verse 15. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Well, obviously, the all that died are Christians. We died to sin. We died to our old life. We died to the world. His death is accounted to be our death. Therefore, we're forgiven. So, therefore, the all he died for in this verse would be Christians. Does anybody want to debate that? You're free to. I'm not, I won't be mad. <laughs> I don't get mad about things anymore, except for my snowblower wouldn't start. <laughs> I mean doctrine. It doesn't make me mad that somebody disagrees with me. It really doesn't. I understand that people are going to disagree on things. and I don't get angry demanding everybody agree with me. And I think that there always should be in any church or seminary or Bible college or anywhere where we're learning the opportunity for us to debate and discuss and, and try to come to understanding. And, and that's what you know, we were talking about on the radio. The thing we, that Eric and I were lamenting about on the radio was the seminary took away that opportunity. Uh, we had plenty of disagreements when I was in seminary, but that's how we learned. We, sat, we, we rolled up our sleeves and debated these things. 
And we did it, and the professor loved to see that. I mean, when I was there, always there was a debate, every, every class. <laughs> I, 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 and I, I finally one time went and talked to my professor, a couple of them, and I said, you know, I really don't want to be, if, I, if there's any way I'm harming your, what you're trying to do with this class, I am willing to sit in the back and keep my mouth shut. I promise I'm willing to do that. And, and every one of them said, no. This makes it better. Because I had passion about the Scripture, and I was passionate about everything that we believe, and I thought everything was worth you know, digging into and making. And if there's different ideas, let's decide which one's right. And the TA for one of my most prominent teachers, um, I was golfing with one time, the guy who was his TA, and the TA said, well, Dr. Clark told me that he loves having you in his class because there's always more learning. Not because I was teaching it, but because I made, I was passionate about what I believed. And if somebody disagreed, they'd be passionate. And, and, <laughs> and, and we'd end up learning what the issues are. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I, mean, I was having a debate with somebody. It's kind of ongoing about the limited atonement and <clears throat> universal atonement. And the question he keeps bringing up is, well, why does it say all in all these places? Christ died for all the world. I'm trying to say he died for all the elect. But uh, otherwise, his, uh, his uh, dying on the cross would be ineffectual if some went to hell and he had died for them, right? I mean, well, he yeah, the, yeah, the issue we're talking about, limited atonement, uh, Ryan is here. He's a, kind of an expert on these things. And uh, because our passage says... Um, Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So who are the all that the one died for? All persons without distinction or all who actually believe. All right? And I'm saying the context would have to say all who actually believe because it said all died. And, and if all died, meaning all died to their sin, so that therefore now they're living for Christ and not for themselves, as it says in the next verse, it has to mean believers. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't any verse that said Christ died. Okay, I thought I could get Ryan into this one. Um, now, let me, let me unpack this a little bit to help you, because I know some people, it's just kind of it's hard. It's very hard emotionally. But listen, what, what we really need to determine is what we're authorized to proclaim as the universal call. All right? Now, I believe that the universal call is calling all persons to come to faith into what Christ did on the cross. And Jesus said this, the one who comes. Now, first of all, he says, all the Father gave me will come. But if you don't like that part, look at the rest of the verse. The one who comes, I will in no way cast out. And I can with full assurance and without any equivocation, and I know my dear uh, Arminian professor, Dr. Rakestraw, said, well, I used to be Reformed, but I had to become Arminian because I didn't feel like I could preach the gospel. He said, I had to give too many caveats. Come and be saved unless you're not one of the elect. And I said, I don't, I, who preaches that? I don't preach that. I don't believe that. The one who comes, I'll no way cast out. Never, ever, ever in the history of, the, of uh, salvation since the day of the resurrection of Jesus, has there ever been someone who came to the foot of the cross and said, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Forgive me, Lord. I want, I, I want to repent and I want to believe in you. I want my sins to be washed away. And the Lord says, no, you're not one of my elect. Because he says, 
the one who comes I will in no way cast out. And I believe that as fervently as any Arminian on the face of the earth. And, I, and, and people, they get mad. I say, well, you go, you, I, I've got a hundred sermons on, on the, over a hundred sermons on the internet. You start listening to them, and if you find one where I don't tell people how to come to Jesus Christ and give them the invitation to come, then you call me up and rebuke me, and I will apologize to you. And I said, on the other hand, go listen to all these Arminians out there and try to find the gospel. Okay, go ahead. I, I totally agree. As far as preaching the gospel goes, we preach the gospel to all. And there's, there's uh, I think, uh, there's a non-existent category of someone that comes to Christ and is one of the non-elect or somebody that wasn't atoned for. It just It doesn't exist. As far as biblically, um, I... I've dealt with this a lot because I think one of the problems is in this whole discussion of limited atonement is we have the the Calvinist versus Arminians and you have them debating and then what they do is they take their their terms. Does it mean all or does it mean the elect? And they take the terms of of the debate and impose them onto the text. See, it says, for instance, someone would look at this text and say, see, it says all. So he had to die for all without exception. Well, what we, the key what we have to do when, when doing good biblical exposition is to take it in its original context. And there wasn't an Arminian-Calvinist controversy going on in the first century. That's true. Came, that didn't happen until the 1600s. 1600s. Yeah. What was going on, what the prime issue was, is was salvation being extended to the Gentiles. So, so often in the biblical text, when the word all is being used... This, this uh, text that we're talking here may be an exception. Is It's speaking of all without distinction. It, salvation did not just come to the Jews, but rather because of the cross of Christ, salvation now is proclaimed to all the nations. Therefore, it's available to all, it's preached to all Amen. without distinction. Amen. So I, no one is excluded. No, no one is excluded. The, and the only way you can be excluded is to refuse to believe the gospel. Can we all agree on that? All right. So, um, and I have some dear Armenian friends that I love very much. I'm not parochial. Okay. And, and I, Dr. Clark and Dr. Rakestraw, two of my prime teachers, didn't agree with me on this issue. But they were honorable men who would allow a reasonable discussion in class. And I think, weren't, didn't you have Rakestraw and... The debate came up, and somebody somebody came up and said, uh, "Well, I, I, I'm going to be a Calvinian." Okay. And uh, and uh, Ryan was in the class, and Ryan put up his hand and he said, "That is absolutely impossible because this is an either-or." All right. And Rakestraw, who's Wesleyan, agreed with Ryan. He said, "It really is either-or. There's no middle ground." Let me tell you why there's no middle ground. Because of monergism and synergism. That's an either-or. Either. Let me give you the either-or. And then, um, Patricia. No, over here. Okay. Uh, uh, let me give the either-or, and then we'll continue. The either is this. Here's the either-or. In fact, let's just get, get rid of all the rhetoric, all the tulip, all the limitatomen, all the worries about these things, and let's just decide one issue. One. One simple issue, and this is the either-or. And this was the battle of the Reformation. This was the either-or that Trent anathematize all of the reformers over was synergism or monergism. 
And that's what Rakestraw agreed. That's an either or. And let me tell you what that means. Synergism says that salvation is a cooperative effort between man and God. Man does his part, God does his part, and we put the two parts together, you end up with salvation. That was the position of the Council of Trent. That was the position of the Roman Catholic Church. And monergism says that salvation is a work of God alone. Salvation is of God. That was the position of every last reformer. And that is specifically anathematized. And the Catholic Church says, if you believe that, you are damned to hell. All right. That's what you've got to decide. Everybody here, if you want to know theology, has to decide which one of those are true. Now, if you don't want to decide that, that's okay, but then don't get into the debate. All right? Because you're not even talking about the same thing. You're, uh, go read a systematic theology. It's in there. Now, the discussion. Yes. Well, I thought of two verses. Um, Whosoever will may come. And then I looked this one up in Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So yes. the heart of God and the, you know, he... He wants everyone to have the opportunity. We have to look at that as part of the that's bal- why That's why we preach the universal call. Mm-hmm. And I believe, I believe that God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Right. Now, what don't we know? What we don't know is why God doesn't save everybody. We don't know that. Right. And do we have to know that? Oh, if we had to know it, it would be in the Bible. <laughs> okay, now... I mean, a lot of people want to attribute God's, uh, God's in, this to God's inability. In other words, there's a, there's a lack in God that keeps him from saving everybody. But that's not what the Bible says. Yes? Um, I mentioned this before in a previous Bible study morning. The main thing we have to remember is that it is our command to go and preach the gospel. Amen. We don't know... <laughs> Who the Lord is going to save and Amen. who he's not going to save. Amen. We could argue about this until the cows come home, but it is our job to go and preach the gospel. Amen. That's our job. I totally agree. And how sister. will they hear unless they have a preacher Amen. who's going out? And it's Amen. our job to witness with our lives and our words. Amen. I totally agree with you. And I believe that if the gospel is accurately preached, even by somebody with bad theology, God will still save people. Yeah, in fact, Paul said that God would save people through the gospel when it was preached to people that had selfish ambition in Philippians. So he can rejoice. I'll rejoice with anybody who preaches the gospel, even if I disagree with their eschatology or I disagree with their soteriology or, or some other aspect of theology. If they preach the terms clearly and forthrightly without embarrassment or shame, God will use it to convict people and save them. And when we get to heaven, if we didn't understand this, we'll have to ask more questions. Okay. And just kind of going back to when we were talking about rake straw, and this kind of dovetails on what we were talking about last week. And I, I think you would echo this, Bob. Even though we disagree with rake straw about, you know, a lot of things regarding synergism versus monergism and some other sanctification issues, I really appreciated him because we would, he, he would deal with us on a biblical level. Amen. And uh, I had him and then the person that we talked about last week, Schultz, yeah. at the same time uh, when I was there. 
and uh, I really got the, to really see the difference there. Even though he, we disagreed, he still was dealing with things on a biblical level, and thus we were learning Amen. good things. Yes. And there, I, I went to him and I, I, uh, that after that quarter, and I, I let him know how much I appreciated that, we, that we, he was teaching us on a biblical level, and we were still learning about the issues rather than getting into God Philo- is the future nonsense. Yeah, like philosophy and yeah, speculation. And on the radio, I honored to teach him. I told, uh, Jan gave me the chance to honor the teachers that I appreciated that I had. And I included Dr. Clark and Dr. Rakestraw, even though we had disagreements, because I agree. We were learning because we were opening the Bible, and we were dealing with traditional theological issues like theories of the atonement or even Arminianism and Calvinism. Those are theological issues, and we dealt with them on a biblical level. Now they turn it into this postmodern thing, and they don't even talk about it. If you even want to ask, Ryan, Bob, go ahead, and I want to hear Ryan again. He has a story about that. Yes. Just in, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, it says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Amen. That's our job. Yeah, and I, mean, I was reading Proverbs 30 over the weekend, and I was talking about just we're not to add to the Word of God. Amen. And I think too often I see that. People say, okay, well, then add this. And yeah, what's not revealed is not for us. And there's things that are not revealed. And it's legitimate to say something's a mystery if it's not revealed. Now, if it is revealed, then it's not a mystery. Okay, Yes. You know, and I, I agree with you, Bob, and I, you know, it's good to voice those things. Even in the midst of a lot of the nonsense that was going on, God was able to use people like Rakestraw and for you, Clark, and Versaput to help us come Amen. along. So, you know, I thank the Lord for that. But the problem is, is the seminaries are now churning out people that are so unprepared that are going into churches. And even... Even in some of these other churches, um, I know for a fact that still Calvinism versus Arminianism is still being brought up. Even in your seeker-sensitive, I was reading some blogs over the weekend that were noting this. And I remember I was in one of these touchy-feely groups that they had you do where you talk about how you felt, you know, with a What does it mean to you? Yeah, what does it mean to you? And we, <laughs> funny, one of the conversations was led into Calvinism versus Arminianism. And there was a guy in my group that was graduating that quarter with two degrees, one in MDiv and the other MA, and he was not able to adequately define Calvinism and Arminianism. He didn't even know. He didn't even know. Well, how could that be a the theological issues. education? So I think that demonstrates the, the deficiencies that are going on in the seminaries right now. The issues aren't even being addressed, so people are coming out with these big degrees that make it look like they've been educated, but they don't even, they don't even have the ability to uh, define some of the most basic The most terms. basic issues in church and theology. One more quote here. Uh, back to our verse. Let's finish this verse. Therefore all died. So therefore, I was going to read this. Uh, Dr. Martin says this. Related to the meaning of huper, that's our on behalf of, is the adjective pontes, all. For whom did Christ die? All of mankind or the ones who accept Christ? In one sense, the answer is both. And I agree with that. In one sense, the answer is both. That the death of Christ was a benefit for all of humankind is an a priori of, th- of theology. It's absolutely true. All of human history has been influenced because of the death of Christ. And for the better, I might say. Because the church is salt and light in the world. 
Okay? The death of Christ was a benefit for all of humankind. The answer is both. Uh, excuse me, a priori of theology. But as will be seen below, Pontone in, in 514D and 515 can speak only of those who have accepted the message of reconciliation. Uh, so, there, uh, so therefore, the context here in this verse would say, die for all means those who actually died because they believed and they went to the cross. Now, I am excited about what we're going to learn in church today. I had the most exciting week studying Luke. And uh, I'm going to be preaching on us. I consider this an honor, a sacred privilege to be able to talk about these verses. What does it mean to pick up your cross and follow Christ? That's what we're going to do in church. So don't go away early. All right. So uh, put the 